Welcome to the Revenue Engine Podcast. I'm your host, Rosalind Santa Elena, and I am thrilled to bring you the most inspirational stories from revenue generators, innovators, and disruptors, revenue leaders in sales, in marketing, and of course, in operations. Together, we will unpack everything that optimizes and powers the revenue engine. Growth Farm Production. Are you ready? Let's get to it. Whether we are in an up market or a down market, the battle for top sales development talent is always on. How do you source and hire the right talent for your sales team? How do you ensure that they are successful when they are hired? And how can you provide the best training even before they are hired into your workplace? Salespeople often hate their CRM. Why? Because they are hard to use difficult to customize and expensive to maintain. This means leads and opportunities don't get updated. Things get missed and sales can suffer. Insightly is the modern CRM that teams love. Easy to use, flexible enough to support your unique needs and scales with you as you grow. This helps you sell smarter, grow faster and build lasting customer relationships. Insightly is trusted by more than a million users worldwide. For more information, visit insightly.com forward slash get insightly. In this episode of the Revenue Engine podcast, Chris Waldron, the CEO and co-founder of Satellite, addresses these questions and so much more. He also shares why it is so critical to ensure that there is equality of opportunity to all individuals across diverse geographies, races, ages, and gender. So please take a listen to this two-time founder and longtime sales leader and learn how to accelerate sales training and coaching to help accelerate revenue. So excited to be here today with Chris Waldron, the CEO and co-founder of Satellite. Satellite is a decentralized workplace training and placement program that connects talented professionals in up-and-coming U.S. cities to remote roles in modern technology sales organizations through a better way to train and place sales talent with high-growth companies. So welcome, Chris, and thank you so much for joining me. I am super excited to unpack your story and learn more about you and what you're building. Great. Yeah, no, I appreciate you having me as well. Thank you. So let's dive into it. I mean, let's talk a little bit about your career journey and some of your backstory, right, leading to founding Satellite. I mean, you have just an incredible background as a co-founder, a sales leader, a mentor, and just so much more. Um, can you share maybe more about your career journey and some of your experience um, you know, prior to Satellite? And I would love to hear more about this door-to-door selling <laughs> too. That, that always spurs an interesting conversation <laughs> with people. So I, I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, yeah, I mean, when I think about how I want others to think about me, um, first and foremost, a founder, Satellite's my, my second startup. Uh, so my first startup was TakeLessons.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is another talent marketplace where we helped focus what well, we focused on uh, creators, mainly tutors who want to do what they love to do. So teaching subjects like piano, parkour, math, but they were never able to earn a decent income from it. And we actually had a friend who was a drummer who was living paycheck to paycheck, um, yet the most talented drummer in a band, and he was going to quit his job in the band uh, because he had a family, uh, a son that was on the way. And so we decided to build Take Lessons for him. 
And mm-hmm. basically what it was, uh, was a um, entire platform for scheduling payments, communication and marketing for tutors. And luckily that was acquired by LinkedIn uh, about a year and a half ago. And uh, they've rolled that into their learning org, but that was my first uh, official uh, entrepreneurial uh, attempt and really appreciated that. But uh, after I left Take Lessons, I wanted to uh, work within operations at a different scale level. Mm-hmm. And I love the intersection between operations and revenue. And so I knew I wanted to be in a VP of sales role. And, but I knew I, wouldn't, I couldn't get excited about just selling a marketing automation platform or something like that. Mm-hmm. And there were two organizations on the East Coast. I was moving from San Diego to New York. And I wanted to work uh, with either Managed by Q, uh, mm-hmm. and that was uh, being led by Dan Turan, or um, Andela, which was being led by Jeremy Johnson. And I really appreciated both of their missions and their product. And then I also wanted to learn from them as founders because I wanted to be able to scale a bigger and better business. So uh, unfortunately, Dan Turan rejected me um, (laughs) and did not accept me at his head of sales. Uh, But I finally sold Jeremy after about three or four months of a drip campaign. Mm -hmm. And uh, things worked out. And I came on right after their Series B from Spark Capital. Um, We raised our Series C from CZI, our Series D from Generation. And at that point, they wanted to bring in a professional CRO who's managed $100 million uh, in in revenue, P&L. And Mm -hmm. that made sense. But I had a lot of fun building uh, Andela with an amazing team. And uh, I just fell in love with what we were doing at Andela. And that led to Satellite and happy to share more on what Satellite is. But um, my first foray into sales was door-to-door knife sales. And so, as you mentioned, um, you know, back in college, I sold knives uh, for a company called Vector Marketing. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I started the job was my mom worked part-time in a restaurant um, and she didn't have enough money to be able to send me to college. Uh, Mm -hmm. She um, was a high school grad. My stepdad was a garbage man with a high school degree. And so I had nobody that um, could help me with getting into college and to be able to pay for it. And so um, I had to work full time and I saw a flyer that told me I could make $2,000 over a holiday break. Mm -hmm. And so little did I know for the next four years of college, I'd be selling knives door to door. (laughs) Um, Also didn't realize that I I would make $100,000 in my first year out of college. Yeah, as a sales manager, it's a very, very lucrative opportunity. Um, and obviously, I've got a lot of crazy B to B to C stories uh, from that, but that's probably for another day. Um, and it's not part of my resume, but I will say that I am um, a big uh, advocate of parenting, mm-hmm. and so I'm also a dad and co-parent to two amazing kids. Uh, they inspire me all the time to do great work, and I'm always excited to talk to them about the students and learners who are in our program, about the partners we're working with, um, and, and they really inspire me to, to make a positive and big impact on others. So that's, that's, awesome. that's my background in a nutshell. That's awesome. I love that. I love that. Thank you for, sure. Thank you for sharing that. 
Um, you know, oftentimes when I talk to founders, you know, the company starts as a result of trying to solve a problem, right? As you mentioned at your first startup or your first um, kind of attempt at entrepreneurship, right? Um, but was this the case with Satellite? I mean, was there some kind of, you know, aha moment or situation that led you to start the business or was it more of just sort of a gradual sort of a pull to it? Um, I think there, there uh, it was a little bit of both. And mm-hmm. so um, I try to journal and reflect a lot. And mm-hmm. so when I made a, a career change multiple times in my life, I always ask myself why. And um, one of the things that I discovered only probably like in my mid-20s that was why I'm in sales um, was in the fourth grade, I wanted a University of Michigan starter jacket. Uh-huh. <laughs> this, was the, this was the 90s, right? I'm in... <laughs> I'm in the fourth grade, right, trying to make an impression. And, and um, while school shopping, um, I pointed out to my mom the jacket. And I think it was like $99 at the time or something like that. And, you know, she pulled me aside and we were there with a friend and his mom who was getting a, a jacket. And she mm-hmm. pulled me aside and just told me, like, she could not afford the jacket. And mm-hmm. that day I, I realized and internalized a few things that I probably didn't understand at a total like comprehension, but like it planted a seed within me mm-hmm. is agency is very important and people want a sense of control over their lives. And over time I learned as an entrepreneur, I could always control my destiny. And, and mm-hmm. that it is to a certain degree also as a sales professional, um, because you could change your income. There's always someone willing to hire you. Um, but as as an entrepreneur, I knew I could always be in control and, and nobody was going to tell me what to do with my company or the brand or anything like that. Of course, I always want to listen to really smart people I've hired, um, but I like being the boss. Yeah. Um, and a, another thing with the starter jacket is like, I just learned that I needed to be a hunter and to get out of my situation so that like, I never needed to count on my mom to pay for anything for me. Like, I knew it was going to take hard work, resiliency. Um, and one of my favorite phrases is, you know, chips on shoulders create chips in pockets. And ah. I look back at that moment and, and know that that was my like molding of, of becoming an entrepreneur. And then what led to like actual satellite was um, both a- around 35 years old, I started a family and I thought of myself as a self-made man. and I only realized that yes, like I was driven, a goal setter, hardworking, all good qualities that we all want to see in in our friends and and teammates. Mm -hmm. Um, But the system was set up for me to succeed Uh, as a white male from a a top 10 or top 20 state school in the nation. Mm -hmm. I was going to get a job offer anywhere I went. And, you know, I moved from Detroit, Michigan to San Diego, California, and I had multiple job offers. Right. And this was in 2004, 2005. Mm-hmm. I was young, um, but like the biases had me set up. And, you know, there were definitely mentors that helped orient me to my career and also made introductions for me. Those all accelerated my path. And mm-hmm. I, I realized not everybody has the same experience and lived experience as me. And I always thought because I grew up poor and because I was, you know, like in a single household, like, I had it hard and, and statistically speaking, like I shouldn't be in a place where I am today as as a 
venture backed CEO owning a home home here in, in Brooklyn, New York. Mm-hmm. But like in a lot of different ways, a lot of people have it a lot harder than than I ever did. And so that's always inspired me to be a strong mentor and to give back to the community of, um, you know, either people from Detroit or people that went to school in Michigan or just people trying to get into sales. Um, and the other thing that led to Satellite was Andela. And I was working with executives like Jessica Hunt and Evan Greenlow, and I was moved by what Andela was building, like I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. And I would spend weeks in Africa meeting engineers in our program who were brilliant individuals uh, whose professional options were becoming fishermen because their grandparent was a fisherman and their mm-hmm. dad was a fisherman. And so through our training that we did at Andela and through like the managed services program we had, we were able to help people in 5x their income in six months and to save 20x more, you know, over the next two years. And like, I just came back from Africa every time more and more fired up about what we were doing at Andela. And then when it was time for me to leave, like I combined all of those experiences of being broke, getting into sales and having strong mentorship and network. And then like believing in the, the concept that intelligence is evenly distributed. And, you know, like I didn't reinvent the wheel. Like, Satellite is here to help people gain bridge and have equal access to meaningful and lucrative careers, regardless of their socioeconomic background. And it's my job to create a brand that sales leaders and CEOs in our industry more broadly trust that they're going to get a high quality product by recruiting out of our platform. Oh, I love that. I love that. There's so much there to unpack. (laughs) But I mean, (laughs) what a great story and just great journey to get here. I mean, it's just so, I'm truly just kind of inspired by what you've just shared. I mean, even your your, uh, quote around, you know, chips on shoulders become chips in pockets. Is that what the quote was? That's, I actually wrote that down because it actually, um, it's quite meaningful even to me. Yeah. It's quite meaningful to me. I, I, I just want I just want to make sure to give credit. There's a VC Josh at Lux Capital yeah. who says that, and so um, I borrowed from him with pride, <laughs> but like wrote it down the first time I heard it as well, yeah. and and have definitely thought about it a lot. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, so you touched on this a little bit. You talked about uh, the vision for satellite. You talked about sort of that equality of opportunity, right? And sort of the access to those lucrative sales careers. Um, in at satellite, you offer training, right, along with that community support, and then that access to that career development coaching that you mentioned. Um, can you maybe talk a little bit more about the business? You know, kind of the business model, and maybe how both companies and individuals can benefit. Yeah, um, definitely. And so. My firsthand experience of building a sales development org um, was not pretty. And at, at Andela, we had raised a round, needed to generate a lot of MQLs or, or sales qualified leads. And we just weren't hitting our, our top of funnel numbers. And I went to my CFO, Isaac, and said, basically, we need to build a 25, 30 person SDR team in the next 90 days. Or with our sales cycle and our win rates, we're not going to hit our numbers three quarters from now. Mm -hmm. And they gave me the budget and I made a ton of mistakes. Mm -hmm. And what I realized is that um, hiring for for sales development 
is is really hard. Like there's no shortage of people. Mm-hmm. Like there's 60 million people who are underemployed. And so the problem isn't just getting applicants, right? Like even in this bad market, like you could post a job and get 200 applicants. Um, you could spend any amount of time on, on LinkedIn and you'll trip over 10 people that are looking for getting into tech sales. The problem is that with hiring for SDR and entry level, what I like to call emerging roles, it's hard for a sales leader to translate the skills from previous roles into matching them against both your sales culture and then the role and responsibility of an SDR. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is as managers, when I interviewed a bunch of sales leaders to figure out how to build this SDR org, all of them basically said some version of hire white males who went to liberal art colleges and played on the lacrosse team and you're going to do well. And like, I knew that was full of biases and, and, and bad approach to things. And of course, uh, an NCAA athlete is going to be more successful than some in a sales development role, but it's not the only type of, of persona that's going to succeed. And as, as a function, like 50% of hires don't make it nine months. And so I just looked at that and said, there's got to be a better way. And and so I thought about like, what if we flip the script? And obviously there's a lot of boot camps out there and I wasn't coming up with some novel type of idea, but how we thought about it was different. And, you know, what I mean by that is, first of all, is, you know, w- when you think about sales boot camps particularly, um, and I don't mean everybody, and I don't know the whole landscape. It seems like a new boot camp pops up every week or every month. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of them design it in a way that learning is asynchronous, content heavy, maybe some lecture style events where like a well-known sales persona is talking to people in a lecture style environment. And then they commercialize it with attaching an income share agreement or a deferred tuition plan, which is where Basically, you pay 10% of your income for the next three years up to seven, nine, 12. There's programs that charge upwards of $25 or $30,000 for their program. And I just, no matter what on paper, how people think ISAs align incentives of boot camps to the learners, I disagree because when I interviewed 50 people back in 2000, they didn't need the learning. We all know there's hundreds of hours of learning online on YouTube and LinkedIn every day. Mm-hmm. What they needed was to be oriented to the job of what an actual SDR looks like. And they need to be able to be given the network and that last mile of access to hiring partners. And they need someone to vouch for them. And so an income share agreement incentive, like I think the world is run by incentives. And Mm -hmm. if I'm running a business with an income share agreement model, my job is to get as many people to sign that contract as possible, scale that learning one to a thousand as quickly as possible, and then have the money come pouring in with, you know, the same margins as a traditional SaaS company. And I'll raise all kinds of venture capital and people will think I'm a genius. And I just don't think that's the way that it works. Like an income share agreement might be a good way to defer the payment. But if you're in service of helping B2B partners hire the best talent, 
like you can't tell me you're putting the best talent through your program if you're monetizing it through an income share agreement. And so I know I've said a lot there. Um, what satellite is, is an immersive case-based approach with heavy coaching and mentoring. And I don't want to get into the weeds and bore everybody with what all of that, <laughs> that looks like. Like if anyone's interested, my program leader is a former Teach for America executive, and he has designed it in a way that where we focus on frameworks and mindsets, yeah. and then we're able to actually practice the work and, and, and responsibilities of an SDR. And we see our learners go through an amazing journey over about seven to eight weeks. Um, some of them come in with a strong foundation, right? They sold insurance for two years and they hate the industry and they want to get into tech sales. And we really just need to polish their skills. But they come, they in their CSAT um, feedback, they talk about how they were arrogant and they thought they were going to know it all and, and how we helped reframe how you should think about um, the role and responsibilities of an SDR. And I'm really proud of, of that. They get a lot out of our program. But then we see individuals who are former teachers, police officers working in nonprofits, and, and they come through our program. We break all the myths that you can think about the alpha bro, you know, cold call sales environment. Mm -hmm. And then we're able to give them access to rewarding careers. And we're able to help increase their financial stability. And in the short term, we're able to get our learners anywhere from a 20 to 40% bump in, in their pay. But over a 20 year career, as you and I both know, the trajectory that one can be on in working in tech sales, they can make anywhere from an extra million to $1.5 million compared to their previous um, industry and career. Mm -hmm. And so that shifts somebody's entire socioeconomic standing and that's a home that's diapers for when they start having kids <laughs> that's a college education for for a child who maybe otherwise wouldn't have been able to go to college because they didn't have access or, or they never you know have had the ability to pay for it otherwise mm -hmm. and so as a company we are a training and mentoring platform on the b2c side and it's extremely rigorous and immersive and what that allows us to do is to build the confidence that our buyers, our B2B enterprise companies, know that when they're paying for access to our talent, they're gaining access to a hidden diverse pool of talent mm -hmm. that they otherwise could not get on their own. And we're, we're recruiting at scale always. And so we get over 2,500 people applying to our program every single month. Wow. And so if a series B company comes to us and needs to hire six people, it sometimes takes them three months. And it's really hard to like line up all six of those people into one training cohort. And they talk to 30 people who are like way off the mark and somebody could come to our, our, our platform. And if they want to interview six people, they could have 12 interviews booked within 72 hours. And that's the power of, of recruiting out of satellite. Wow. Wow. Yeah, the, the recruiting is really, really tough, right? And I think about 
in the market today, you know, on one hand, we have, you know, talent shortage, right, in sales. But then with the last, you know, several months or last couple of months, we've been seeing a lot of folks come on the market because of all these tech, lay- you know, all these layoffs, especially in technology. But regardless of sort of where the market falls, I think there's just this constant battle, right, to have strong experience and ex- expertise, especially in sales. Um, what are you seeing, I guess, in the market today in terms of sort of talent around the sales the sales role? Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny because I would have answered that question very differently just a few quarters ago. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. There, as I mentioned earlier, there, there's no shortage of people, um, you know, with uh, people being underemployed or um, interested in, in getting into new careers. But I think the problem specific to the market that I play in, and this may not be the same for more senior roles or, or maybe a different function, is um, I have found that sales leaders for the sales development function see them as a fungible role mm. and are easy to uh, fire and, and to get rid of and pretend like they never existed. Mm. And I don't want that to sound dark or, or like a blanket statement across the entire industry, um, but it's, I see it just time and time again. And I know part of it is, is revenue leaders are having a hard time um, putting an ROI to the SDR function. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can remember at Take Lessons, because we, we had a, it wasn't an SDR team. It was actually more of a customer support or customer success on the B2C side. And I remember sitting in a meeting with all of our executive team and I'd made a passive comment um, about somebody's performance and, and my VP of product actually chimed in and, and shared with me like how important those people are to the success, uh, overall success and growth of, of take lessons at the time. And that I, he, and this guy is a tech person who's managing the technology as, as a product, but he genuinely was more passionate about the people and that they, the customer service that we were giving than, than I was. And I just realized that like, just because somebody is, is junior or they're less experienced or they're not carrying a quota um, mm-hmm. makes them no less important. And from that day forward, like I always knew that my frontline team was super important to me. And I, I find that a lot of revenue leaders, especially in tough times, like right now are um, easily blaming SDRs and or like, um, getting rid of teams. And uh, it's just, it's discouraging. So I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I can maybe along the same lines, I mean, you've touched on this a little bit around sort of what people are doing sort of right and what they're doing wrong. You know, are you, are there any things that you would like to highlight around sort of when it comes to sourcing and then retaining, right, that sales talent, are there any things that you're seeing that, you know, companies are actually doing right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely. And I, yeah, t- definitely. If I was morbid before, I apologize. Uh, <laughs> no. I think there's a lot of companies that are doing things really well. Um, you know, this is something that um, I'm biased about, and it also benefits my company. But I hear a lot more teams talking about building diverse orgs. Yeah, And so that's diversity of um, obviously rage, uh, race, age, ethnicity, um, um, gender, but it's also like geographic, experiential, and, and they're open to people that don't have 
a four-year college degree. And, and that's super exciting because like I barely graduated from college and my degree has never been the reason why I've been successful in, in sales or, or in life. Uh, another thing is uh, I see some people doing really well and I shared this actually on LinkedIn recently is good feedback loops. And in my own personal experience, I can remember my first HR leader at Take Lessons who was like, oh, we can't share feedback. Mm. And I was like, we were in California. And so like she explained to me that the reasons why. And I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But like I never put myself in the shoes of the candidate, especially a junior emerging talent type of individual who's maybe interviewing or trying to apply at 40 or 50 places and they're getting no feedback. Yeah. And, and, and so like, I think companies, uh, there's some really good companies that like take a minute and give good feedback. One of our SDR uh, managers, like in all of her rejection emails, there was like a Calendly link for a 15 minute call where like if they wanted to actually take the effort and schedule it, um, they would give the candidates feedback. Um, and I thought that I just love that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a few other things that people are doing really, really well is um, we have seen sales development orgs thrive under CMOs. Mm. And, um, you know, I, it was, it's very interesting to me because the skills and the mindset of the marketing org are overlapping with the sales org, but mm-hmm. not 100%. And we have partners like Naya, um, an HR tech uh, SaaS company. and our, our placements have really thrived under them and they're obviously hiring and recruiting more out of our, our platform right now as we speak. And I feel like um, the marketing org helps BVRs have more of an account-based strategy, um, more of a product and product marketing uh, point of view. And often, rightfully so, because back to incentives, they, they rule our behaviors. Sales leaders are sometimes short-sighted and they're only driving towards an activity uh, KPI, like call volume or mm-hmm. meetings booked. And, and sometimes I think rightfully so, uh, marketing has a, a more holistic, broad viewpoint um, on lead gen and, and how we're working accounts. Um, so that, that, that's something orgs are doing really, really well. Um, and then finally, like I see some teams, you know, even with declining response rates um, and longer sales cycle, like, advocating for the RSDR org and, you know, on LinkedIn, you know, there's the sales leaders who are always recognizing their SDRs. And then there's the one who share the bad outreach from some other company. And, mm-hmm. um, I feel like, you know, it's our job, just like raising my own children. Like when they walk in the neighborhood, like I want other parents to help teach the values and what good behavior looks like and support my kids and help stand them up as good citizens. And um, there's a lot of really great revenue leaders who I feel are advocating really well for SDRs. And I'm excited for it because I don't think everyone believes in the function um, as a good ROI. Yeah, I love that. I do see a lot, you know, having spent spending a lot of time on LinkedIn, I see a lot of really great advice also given and good examples of, you know, what good looks like. So that's great. Um, you know, if I think about for individuals who may be thinking about starting a career in sales, do you have any advice maybe for them? Like, how do they know if sales is a good 
career path for them? And maybe what questions should they be asking themselves? Yeah, I mean, the short and easy answer is check out joinsatellite.io. <laughs> Yeah. Um, through through our admissions process, you know, we we definitely help orient people to the role and, and responsibility um, of what an SDR is. But other than that, um, I have found that writing and reflecting on my writing is extremely beneficial. And sometimes people are overwhelmed with buying the calendar or buying the journal and doing it every single day. Um, but you can start with a post-it, like, and, and every day, um, write just one emotion and, uh, that you feel about a career change, and then one topic that you're going to research related to becoming a sales professional, and then one person that you could reach out to who could be either pro or, or uh, anti becoming a, a sales professional and interview them. And, you know, I feel like we talk in our heads a lot and it's better to get things out into the world, um, especially when you are, you don't know what you don't know. And I think that as a physical therapist, you're questioning your career all the time. And if you're not excited when you wake up in the morning, um, maybe tech sales could be a really good opportunity for you. Yeah, that's really great advice. I never thought about that. That's actually very practical advice. I go through a lot of post-its in my office. <laughs> I was talking to a, another a RevOps leader yesterday, and he said that he had post-its everywhere of all the notes of things he needed to go do, which I'm nice. also sometimes guilty of. So, Okay, yes. let's talk about something else. I think on your LinkedIn profile, I saw that you share that at the end of the day, only a few things matter right, to achieve success, and you share these three things. One, prioritization of your talent development, right, composed of individuals across diverse geographies, races, ages, and gender. Two, you talk about product and go-to-market execution. And then three, you talk about balance of high growth and best-in-class SaaS metrics. So to me, when I read that, I'm like, okay, simple, straightforward, makes sense. But can we talk through these and maybe learn more about, you know, your perspective here? Yeah, for sure. I need to go back and, and review my, my LinkedIn um, and, and probably update that. I was, I was probably trying to be performative at some point and, and sound smart on LinkedIn, but I'm going to refresh that. But um, with the, the talent, um, I'm biased um, because I'm obviously selling this product, but I, I think hiring good talent is always going to outperform a really well-written playbook. Mm-hmm and um, or a bad culture and i'm not a traditional sales leader meaning like there are hundreds of sales leaders in in organizations like pavilion that are way better at closing deals than me and and i'm very much more of a sales ops and and, and playbook um, type of sales leader but even with that like i just believe if you don't hire good talent and then give them room to grow. Um, your culture and, and your revenues are just going to be okay, but they're not going to be maximized. And so I believe in a, a product playbook or, or go to market playbook. But if you're over investing in that area and you don't have a system to how you recruit, you're not reporting on your diversity numbers, even within a small team. Um, and if you're not making sure that you're like coaching and developing them, 
it gets crazy. When I graduated from college, like IBM would hire someone and put them in a shadowing role for like eight months to, to a year before they would carry a quota. And now I talk to CFOs who are like, is your SDR going to ramp in 30 days? Mm-hmm. Like, can, 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 cause you know, that's part of our value prop is like, our, our people are smarter. So they're going to learn faster. They're going to ramp. And the CFO will be like, I'm going to, I'll pay this big amount of money, but like, can you promise me they're going to ramp in 30 days? And I'm like, no, I cannot. <laughs> right. Like yeah. we, we can't guarantee that. But if, if success is 50% of the time you're hiring the right person, you know, satellites going to help you do it 85% of the time. Um, the second thing is about product and go-to-market execution. Like I remind myself all the time to be customer centric. And then I go do something that only benefits me and is at the cost of the customer experience. Even, I think it was last week, I was talking to my co-founder and CTO, right? And mm-hmm. stereotypical, like you would not think a CTO is so customer driven, but like, I love my co-founder. And we were talking about some changes to our service agreement. And I was like, oh, well, we should do this. And he was like, really, tell me why. And like the three bullets were all benefits for us. Mm-hmm. And it did not improve the, the customer experience at all. And he was like, I disagree. Mm-hmm. And I love that he called me out on it because it was a reminder that like being customer centric and thinking about your product and the pain that you're solving for them, like always needs to be at the core of what you do. And if you can't make enough money doing it without charging somebody an extra fee or a tax or, or manipulating them somehow, like maybe your product isn't as good as it needs to be. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. And then the third thing is just the balance of high growth and best-in-class SaaS metrics. Like, I went to Andela because I wanted to be in a grinder. And Take Lessons was also, but, like, I wanted to make it to $100 million in, in revenue. And, um, you know, that's important, and it's a great experience. But growth at all cost um, is not always worth it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at Take Lessons, we, we had a choice and we chose, let's get good at all of our metrics as a two-sided marketplace and not keep over-investing in these areas where it would help us continue to be classified as a tech company. It would make sure we're growing 200% a year. But if anyone d- peeled back the onion two layers, you would see that they're not adopting these features and it's costing us just as much money to grow as we're generating in revenue. Mm-hmm. And so in hindsight, I'm glad we chose best in class metrics and, and becoming really good because we ended up getting acquired six years later, but it just took us a while to get to that acquisition. Um, but had we chosen the other path, we would have burned and run out of money. Mm-hmm. And so everyone right now is focused on, you know, best in class SaaS metrics. I came out of the CRO summit and, Everyone was like all about efficiency and that's great. And, and uh, you know, the, it took the market change to make that happen. But like, we all know, like boiling a frog, it's going to go back the other way, whether it takes two years or, or five years, it's going to go back the other way. And like, I just encourage everyone to like, always ask yourself, like, why, right? Like, why are you trying to grow at these, these rates? And if you have a good reason, then you should do it at Andela. We had reasons and we did it and it was great. 
Um, but it's not it's not the only way to grow. Yeah, I love that. That's great. And it's the the market's kind of flip flops constantly, right? Over the last couple of decades, you can just kind of see we all kind of come out of it at the other other end, and then the pendulum tends to swing, you know, full force the other direction. I mean, just the last few years, even it's been a quite right. a roller coaster. Um, yeah. You know, so as I think about the revenue engine, I think about this podcast, I'm always hoping others will, you know, be able to learn how to accelerate revenue growth and also in this market retain revenue, but really power that revenue engine. So maybe as a CEO, a two-time founder, a longtime sales leader, you know, from your perspective, you know, what are the top maybe two or three things that you think all leaders should really be thinking about today to help drive and retain revenue? So uh, one thing that I recommend that maybe sounds counterintuitive, but Sam Jacobs always talks about creating value and leaving some on the table. And he even brought it up recently at a uh, pavilion event. And I think it's a good long-term view of the world um, and one that I encourage. And I have found even in our, our business as satellite is, you know, not trying to get, hundred percent of the contract right away has, has benefited me in ways um, downstream that ended up generating more revenue. And in our space, a lot of people refer us to their friends and, and peers. And I found that, you know, creating a little bit of extra space and, and just leaving something on the table has benefited me. And then uh, another thing I just was um, speaking to the founders of um, Forum Ventures, uh, they run a really interesting program there. And I was sharing with them, like, I recommend them to stay close to the buyer, the customer, as long as humanly possible. And it's so easy to convince ourselves um, that we have other priorities, right? Like writing an employee handbook, or, you know, I hired that sales leader, so she can take it over now. And I don't have to do that anymore. Um, but and I know I won't have the heartbeat of the market forever, but I love founders and CEOs like Pete, um, CEO from Atrium. Like he is still actively involved in cadences. He had tweeted out like a week or two ago about like the productivity and out outputs of a, a, a cadence he put together, mm -hmm. um, reaching out to maybe some accounts. And like, I love that. Mm -hmm. and, and I constantly remind myself, stay close to your buyer and, and understand them as much as possible. And so I'm actually trying to think about how to build a customer advisory board. So if anyone listening to this has done that and you want to reach out to me and give me five tips on, on how to do that, I would love that in return. Is there anything, you know, as you kind of look back, is there anything that maybe you wish you knew earlier or maybe you would do differently if you could kind of hit that reset button and do it all over again? Um, Yes. <laughs> and I think I, you touched on I, some I, of the things <laughs> kind of throughout the conversation. Yeah. But the, the one thing that I would do is um, I would treat people with more empathy. Mm. And um, in sales, often I think we operate with this mindset that like salespeople are, are gritty and they can just deal with direct conversations and I can be radically uh, <laughs> mean to them, right? Like yeah. all that kind of like BS. And um, going back to Andela, like it was an amazing experience in two years going from $5 million to $50 million in, in uh, reoccurring revenue. And I just wish I'd been more present with the team 
and in the one-on-ones, not always focus on the metrics and the results. And I think I was decent at getting to know them, um, but it was just an amazing experience in my life. And I wish I had been more present. And even now with like my kids, like when I hug them, I make sure it's a real hug with both arms and (laughs) and I'm thinking about it thoughtfully. And I'm not going to hug all my employees all the time unless that's (laughs) what they want me to do because I don't want to get in trouble with HR. Um, But like, I just wish I treated people with more empathy. I, I actually, quick story. I reached out to one of my buyers recently, not recently, about a year ago. And he was at a new company. He interviewed with me at Endela. And he shared with me that after the interview, he went home and cried. And I was blown away that this individual was, was comfortable enough to share this with me. And I remember the day and I did not handle myself professionally during an interview. He was someone who came highly um, scored in, in our interview process. Everyone loved him. And there were some things that happened during the interview and I was just like a flat out no and had checked out. I'm not making an excuse for my behavior, but like I'm, I'm sure I was burned out at that point in time as a sales leader. And I just wish I would have been more present and treated him with more empathy. And luckily, because he gave me the gift of, of knowledge, like I was able to hopefully repair that after the fact. Um, but I encourage you as sales leaders, like not to put yourself in, in, in that situation and, and to remain empathetic to your team. Oh, I love that. That's great advice. And that's a great story too. This, I, you know, I can't wait till I go back and listen to all of this, Chris, because I feel like you're just dropping all kinds of, you know, all kinds of really great advice, very insightful and just very based upon, you know, real life experience. So definitely there's just so much to learn from you. Um, so thank you. For, for so much for joining me. Um, but as we wrap up, before I let you go, I always ask every guest two things. One, you know, what is that one thing about you that others might be surprised to learn? And two, what is the one thing that you really want everyone to know about you? I appreciate you let me know these were going to be questions because I would have <laughs> said something even more ridiculous. Um, but uh, I'm pretty boring, but I love bowling. And oh. so again, I live I live here in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. So if anyone needs a bowling teammate this winter, <laughs> totally available, and, and would love to get that surprising email in my inbox. Um, <laughs> and then the one thing I want everyone to know about me: um, I hate to lose, and you know I try to balance that in my personal life and and, and not letting it <laughs> negatively affect um, how I. I operate with my kids or my friends or anyone, (laughs) but like I'm super competitive. Great. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for joining me. I'm so happy to have done this, this podcast with you and just learn so much about you and about your business and learn from you. Yeah. I appreciate having me on it as well. And and obviously, hopefully um, we get to connect again. That's awesome. Thank you, Chris. Good night. 